when I opened up Ed's Lobster Bar back in 2007, literally the day it opened up, I shot Martha Stewart in the morning. What? And it was crazy. I had never been on TV before, live audience. Hey, Upper Feasters, hope you're having a great day so far. Today's my birthday, shout out to me. So remember to subscribe and give me a five-star review. Anyway, I talked with Ed McFarland of Ed's Lobster Bar. His origin story, he started off as a busser, then he cooked in a pizzeria, went to the French Culinary Institute, worked at Pearl Oyster Bar, and then he eventually opened up his own restaurant. He was also on Beat Bobby Flay a bunch of times as a judge and once as a competitor. I asked him why his lobster roll is $40. He gave me some pro tips on choosing the freshest lobster as well as tips for cooking it at home. This episode was really great and I'm definitely gonna have Ed on again. 100% recommend checking out his restaurant if you're in New York City. I was hoping you could maybe give me a little bit of your origin story, like maybe like when did you start cooking, when you fell in love with cooking, etc. Yeah, you know, cooking is definitely all about passion, right? You have to love cooking in order to succeed in this business. And even, and you see it all the time, there's guys who do it who are good at it, but they don't love it. And they kind of just reach a point and they never get uh, ahead of that point. And, you know, it's the people who really love it that, that kind of get to the next level. They think outside the box, they get creative. I started at 16 years old as a busboy. I opened up a TGI Fridays in Staten Island. <laughs> and I worked as a, and I worked as a dishwasher in there as well. Oh my gosh. So we're going back. We're going back quite a few years, but that was my first foray into restaurants from there. I started working in an Italian restaurant. Then I started cooking in a pizzeria, uh, a bridge version. I uh, went to the French culinary Institute, which then became the uh, international culinary center. It has now since merged with uh, ice in New York city and does, and does no longer exist. Uh, 1995, I started working in New York City at Pichelin, went to Le Cirque. I bounced around a little bit after that. And then I ended up at Pearl Oyster Bar for about six and a half years. But I took the job working there. My whole mindset when I took that job was, I'm not going to work anywhere else. I'm staying here till I open my own restaurant. And it took me about six and a half years to get it all together, but I managed to do it. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Starting as a busser and dishwasher, would you agree that the dishwasher is the most underappreciated but hardest job in a restaurant? It, 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 it absolutely is, um, which <laughs> is why, you know, from time to time, you know, I jump in still these days and I wash dishes and, and stuff like that. Uh, when you have a good dishwasher and they're far and few between, but when you have a good dishwasher in the restaurant, you don't want to lose that guy. Right, of because, course. Because most of them are terrible and they don't even clean the plates properly. But when you get a guy who's clean and he's doing a great job and you want to take care of that guy, you definitely, of course. and there's no substitute for, for that experience. You know, there's a lot of cooks these days, you know, who've just gone to culinary school and they come out and they're working in Garmajay or, you know, they jump onto the lawn. They've never really experienced that, that low end, um, that low end part of the restaurant where, you know, you're just grinding it out and it's just, it's just miserable to be there. So uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's definitely, it definitely, it definitely goes a long way. And, and you just don't see it as much as you did back in the older days where guys started and, you know, they were peeling potatoes. Yeah. And I, I personally think, cause I, I used to work at in Times Square for about five and a half, six years, and that place does impressive work and stuff, but the wait staff, we didn't really respect managers when they came straight out of college and they didn't have experience because it just wasn't realistic. Would you agree that that's, that's a pretty common occurrence? You know, that's, that's, that's a, that is definitely happens all the way across the board. Nobody get managers that just come out of school and become managers don't get respect unless they have the working knowledge. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that some of them aren't capable of doing the job, 
they just haven't put in the grunt work and and I you know and there's I think what happens is there's a lack of understanding on both sides of the equation there that happens because you have these people who went to school they got an education and they learned about restaurant management and they're coming on board basically saying like I know I'm making less money than this server right and then the server knows more than the manager and it definitely creates a little bit of a weird dynamic that that happens for sure hey just wanted to say thank you so much for listening so far if you're liking it please subscribe tell a friend if you're loving it please give us a five-star review so you also mentioned the culinary institute by the time you got there were you already a decent cook in your own right or were you kind of super novice or what you know i would still consider myself a novice i didn't have a great background i knew how to cook red sauce. And I knew how to cook at home. I think that I had a good background of what to expect working in a restaurant, but you know, I didn't know the classic techniques. I didn't, you know, like I could chop something up and I could cut a chicken cutlet. I could cut a chicken, but you know, I didn't know how to make nicer cuts. I didn't know proper cooking techniques. It really was a big difference. And, and, you know, I was never going to go from where I was working to all of a sudden working in the city and somebody teaching me that without what I, without going to school at that point in time. Right. And so what were the educators like? Were they kind of like Gordon Ramsay hard ass or were they pretty chill? Like what, what were they like? You know, I want to say there was a mix. And, you know, one of the things that I got out of going to the French Culinary Institute was the connections they had across New York City. And, you know, they were part of like the old French guard back when I went there from like the early days of Le Cirque and, and that kind of whole group was kind of involved. And, you know, there were some great instructors there and, you know, there were some hard asses, 100%. Uh, but for the most part, it was uh, a laid back, but serious atmosphere. And, you know, the instructors knew who was serious and who wasn't, and they were tougher on the people that they knew were serious about the job, much more lenient with the people that they kind of were like, yeah, these people are taking this, but they're, they, you know, they're not really career, career culinary people. So they could, they could spot that pretty much right away. And, you know, you could tell, you know, Having worked in restaurants and and working the whole time while I was in culinary school, you could kind of spot it too that they, you know like the people that were there for, you know like thinking it was all about Martha Stewart and and you know you know uh, salt bay and sprinkling stuff from a hundred feet above in the air, uh, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to the people who understood that it was just you know grunt work and you had to grind it out every day. That's incredible. Would you say that these connections you made at school is that what kind of helped you with your Food Network connects? Like, how did you go about getting on Food Network? No, so that's really interesting. Going back to that kind of connection, Food Network was really just in its infancy. And, you know, that wasn't even a thought in my mind. This was connections just about making sure I got into the best place that I could be in New York City to just, you know, springboard my career and start to learn because that's all school really did for, for us. And, and, and it's true. School is about enabling you to learn and open up to learn more, especially in the restaurant industry. No, the, the Food Network stuff really kind of, um, and the TV stuff kind of came about on its own. I When I opened up Ed's Lobster Bar back in 2007, literally the day it opened up, I shot Martha Stewart in the morning. What? And it was crazy. I had never been on TV before, live audience. You know, at that time, there couldn't have been a bigger show to be on. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, I thought it was a joke, like a week before, like, hey, you know, we saw your restaurants opening up, we're hearing really great things. You know, we'd love to have you on the Martha Stewart show. And I was like, you know, like, I'm thinking like, this is kind of like a joke, like, no, it's not really serious. But you no, know, like, literally, I, I filmed that. And then, you know, the restaurant just kind of, as it got more and more popular, you got asked to do more and more TV stuff. 
And then as you became friends with chefs and stuff in the industry, like, you know, guys who were industry leaders, you started getting asked to be on Food Network and stuff like that. But that didn't come about until after the restaurant was open and it started to gain some popularity. Dude, that's incredible. So how did you feel literally opening day and you have to go be on TV for the first time? Like, was your stomach in knots? How were you handling it? No, it was crazy. And, and, you know, Martha Stewart, she really was like, you know, listen, she ran a great company. So at the end of the day, she knew what she was doing. I mean, they had me there so early before shooting, I could have stayed in bed two more hours, (laughs) uh, which was kind of crazy, but it was kind of nervous. But, you know, my focus was more on making sure that the restaurant opened up without a hitch than being nervous about the show. I think if I had been open for, you know, three months and then I went on, it would be like, oh my gosh, my first time on TV was never really even part of the equation. It really was, you know, and I was, you know, you could see like, I didn't know what to do when we first, if you ever watch the video, you ever get a chance, it's on YouTube. You see in the beginning, I'm kind of like a little like, eh, you know, like, what am I doing? But as we got through it, it got better and better. But I really never thought about like, what am I going to do? I'm in front of a live audience and a camera. The only thing I said was don't curse. <laughs> <You know>? so, <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. And I think that speaks to that. You're like a quote unquote real chef because you were more concerned about your restaurant opening than your television <laughs> debut. Like that's, that's yeah, really- you only get, you only get one first restaurant opening in your lifetime. So um, yeah, I mean, that was really what it was all about. It wasn't about the TV stuff. And you know, it's funny. Cause I used to say back then, like, Oh, I don't care about TV. Like, I'm doing this because I love, I want to have a restaurant and that's what it's about. But, you know, over the years, you realize that as you gain more experience and understanding after I opened the restaurant set, you have to do that stuff now. It's part of the business. And you know what I embrace? I actually really love it. And I'm actually trying to do more of it now. You know, I, I, I love to do more of it and it's really hard to break into it. You know, the cameo pieces are great, but, and, and uh, that's really what I get right now. But Ultimately, you know, that's kind of like the next direction for me in the industry. But yeah, it was all about the restaurant back then. That's, that's all it was about. It wasn't about being like, oh, look at me. I'm on TV. Take a picture with me. It was about like, no, no, no. I, my restaurant's got to open. I got to be busy. I got bills to pay. Yeah, of course. (laughs) So dream world, would you rather have a show like an Anthony Bourdain or a Guy Fieri where you're going around? Or would you rather have more like a Giada De Laurentiis where you're cooking and talking? More like Giada, I much prefer the cooking and talking aspect of it. I think that as a chef, you really are an educator. You know, that's one of the things that I'm not a fan of is all these competition shows or even these shows like they're great, they're entertaining. They come in, they yell at somebody, clean your (laughs) restaurant, do this, do that. Those are kind of like last ditch efforts and they're publicity things and, and, and it sells, people love it. But for me, cooking is about teaching how to make something in its simplest form. Anybody can cook. People are scared of cooking certain things. They don't realize they can do it. But if it's broken down in a simple form and it's everyday stuff, that's really where where my passion for teaching and, and having a cooking show really lies. That's amazing, dude. When you were on Beat Bobby Flay, were you a judge and a competitor at different times or were you only a I, I was a judge and I think I was a judge for 13 or 14 times before I was a competitor. I, I did compete once and really that's truthfully... I did a, a, I did like a smaller competition show once before, but I was never on a real competition show like that. And that was, that was kind of interesting. You know, I was very laid back and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to go crazy. I got this, you know, I know how to cook. That's what it's about. I'm going to live and die with the way I cook. I cook in the simplest form. I'll elaborate a little more because the, the ingredient was a duck egg, right? 
So I was like, oh, you know, I'll make like a frise lardone salad if they have this stuff or an offshoot. And, you know, I'll put the duck egg on top. So the duck egg's the star of the show. I like what I'm cooking to be the star of the show. Well, I hadn't cooked a duck egg in probably 10 years. And so I started cooking, you know, like you're timed, right? And I'm like, I got plenty of time. I start cooking the duck eggs one at a time. I got to cook four duck eggs. I, I start cooking them one at a time. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I got plenty of time. I'll cook one at a time. Instead of putting them all in the pan and cooking them. And I'm like, I'll put them back in the pan. I'll put them under the broiler. And then, you know, Jeffrey Zakarian, who I know was one of the hosts. And he says, you know, I think you got to get those duck eggs cooking. I was like, ah, I got it. I got it. It's not going to take that long. I'm going to throw them under the broiler. Well, <laughs> push came to shove. I never, I forgot about the broiler, oh, which God. was behind me. And I got these duck eggs in front of me on the cutting board. And I'm like, they're not cooked. I'm heating up bacon fat. I'm trying to throw bacon fat on top of them. So, you know, my duck eggs were a little, were a little undercooked. <laughs> so oh but it was fun. It was, it was a good time. I had fun with it. It is serious, but you know, I was, uh, you know, I had a very laid back a- attitude about it. And, you know, I live and die with the way I cook. And that's what I tell people all the time. Everything to me is about the simplest form, straightforward. You're very rarely going to get something super fancy and a thousand ingredients in a dish with me. I think simple top-notch ingredients is 100% the way to go. Now I do have a question for you. I was looking at your website and I, like I said, I lived in New York. I had never had Ed lobsters, but next time I go to the city, I must try it. But $40 for a lobster roll seems a little steep, my friend. Could you elaborate on that price? So yeah, I mean the price of lobster as well as pretty much all products jacked up like crazy this year. We serve a four ounce lobster roll, which is was probably the largest in the city. So it's four ounces of meat, which is essentially the meat pulled out of a pound and a half lobster. The price really jacked up this winter. Uh, we were paying wholesale over $11 a pound, which translates to once you shell that meat, you know, just roughly without having the calculations and getting the percentages, probably like $60 a pound. Oh my gosh. I mean like 55 and 60 a pound at its highest. So, you know, and really... That price was a function of the delivery services as well and covering that additional 15% charge on top of it. So, you know, the lobster roll was $34 all summer last year, which is what it's been for the past couple of years. Um, And, you know, the price of raw materials and and food has gone up just in general as the cost of procuring, as the cost of harvesting and, and, you know, the fishermen goes up. So it's, it's kind of been a long time coming. That's why you see a lot of people have really stuck with the frozen lobster meat, especially, you know, like the faster serve places where they're using processed lobster and it's just knuckle and claw meat. And, you know, they're in that like 15 to 18 to $20 price range for two ounces of meat. Uh-huh. I could go that road, but that's that's not what I do. Uh, for me, I rather say, you know what, I'm sorry, this is the price, but you know my product. And I really believe that my product stands behind itself as being fresh, and, you know, we're, we're cooking all of our own lobster in house. It goes, it goes a long way. And, you know, if the prices drop and, you know, rents drop and everything comes along <laughs> accordingly, we'll go back to, you know, you know, the $30 lobster, 31, 32 as the price drops accordingly. But, but even so right now, I can't put a whole lobster on, on somebody's plate for under $44. That makes so sense. The and- lobster is uh, the lobster is actually a good deal. Gotcha. If you think about it from that perspective, I think the problem that people have with it is that it's a sandwich. And if you're up in Maine and you're getting lobster and you're paying $20 or $15, but you're not getting the same, the same thing. It's more nostalgia and atmosphere as opposed to product. And people have a problem because it's a sandwich, but they have no problem spending, you know, $45 on a pound and a half lobster 
But but if they realized that the pound and a half lobster was within that lobster roll and they were paying, you know, less money for it, you, you know, balancing ratio, it's actually a better deal. I love to hear that. Thanks for that that info. Because I was thinking like, man, Luke's lobster is like 18 bucks, but I'm guessing they probably... I don't know what they do. Maybe they use frozen or maybe, you know, he, you know, I I've had, uh, you know, a couple of deals with them over the years, great guys, nothing bad to say about them. They have their business model and they have a fantastic business model. Luke, I believe, and I you know, don't quote me on me, but you quoted me because I'm speaking, but you know, <laughs> they have a processing business. His dad had a processing business to my understanding. He took it over. He grew the business. He grew Luke. So, I mean, he had a great, he has a great business model and he has, an unbelievable source for his product. You know, all kudos to what they do. They do something completely different than I do. Their target audience is, is different. Although we do have crossover, their target audience and their business model is very different than what I do as a full serve restaurant. Fair enough. If an average consumer like myself, one of the freshest, best lobster to cook at home, do you have any pro tips on how I can tell that it's a good lobster? So number one, the first thing is you want to see a lobster that's moving around, right? That's, that's number one. The other thing I'm going to tell you, if you want to have a better lobster at home and the people in Maine will <laughs> choke me because they'll tell you when you're there, you're an idiot for paying more money for a hard shell. What they don't tell you is that a hard shell has more meat based on the weight than a shedder or a softer shell. So you're going to get a better percentage of meat in a hard shell lobster than in a softer shell lobster because it hasn't grown into fitted shell yet. I also think that the colder the water, the better the meat is. Okay, cool. And, and on, on top of that, Anything that's tanked where you live is not going to taste as good as when they pull it right out of the water because you're getting the taste of the water that's there already. So that's just a couple of things to keep in mind, but look for something that's a harder shell and super lively and moving around. You don't want to sit, when they sit in the tanks for too long, they, uh, even if they're alive, they're not, they're not the same quality. And then do you have any preparation tips? Cause I feel like it's so expensive. It's like a risky thing for me to screw up. Like what's the so best way to it's, it's funny. It is very expensive, especially right now. And you know, stuff that I do with lobster, like making the lobster meatballs and the ravioli and grinding the meat up. Really. It's like a lot of people wouldn't do that because of the, the cost associated with it. But when you, if you just want a simple boil a lobster, big pot of boiling water, you don't need anything in it. And if you want to put something in, go right ahead. If you put something in there, it will flavor the lobster. So anything you put in that pot, moderation. You don't need seawater from the ocean. That doesn't make a difference. The seawater in there, the salt already in the meat, it floats when it's cooking, when it's cooked. You drop it in a big pot of boiling water, it's going to pop up. Leave it for a couple of minutes to make sure that any roe or, or tamale is fully cooked in the middle, done. Easy breezy. A pound and a half lobsters cook very evenly when you do this. Um, when you start to boil lobsters that are in excess of two and a half pounds, you'll see they kind of float kind of sideways because the claws take a little longer to cook. You can crack the claws before you cook it so that it cooks at a, a much even pace. Thank you for that. And so yeah, no on your menu, you have the lobster poutine, the lobster mac and cheese, which I personally love, but some gatekeepers are not into that. Do you have any dish that you think lobster does not belong in? Oh, well, that's a good question. I mean, do I have a dish that I don't think lobster belongs in? Uh, sausage, like a lobster sausage. I've tried and I've just, it, I, I've never had a seafood or lobster sausage that I really think has ever worked well. Do you get Other any- than that, I mean, I mean, I put lobster on pizza. We put lobster in everything, so- do you get any purists that are like, it doesn't belong in cheese or it doesn't belong with pasta? Like, Oh, I get that. I get that. I get people who say you shouldn't have 
you shouldn't have cheese in this dish or, 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 or stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, if you're eating linguine and clams and people say you shouldn't have cheese in it, however you want to eat the food is the way you should eat it. I used to think that way when I first started cooking, you know, cheese doesn't belong on this. I have people that are on all sides of the spectrum. I have people want to put cheese on everything, every piece of fish they eat. So, you know, things are changing and, and uh, the culinary license and expansion is, is really opening up more. It sure is. Do you have any things where you're like, you are a gatekeeper? Like you think a a certain dish has to be cooked a certain way or like, for example, like lobster meatball, I feel like is pretty unique. So I'm guessing you're kind of like a gates open, come on in kind of guy. Yeah. For the most part, I am like that. I want to say, you know, I'm sure there's stuff where I am like, where I am kind of staunch and, and I'm like, you know, that's way too much culinary license. Off the top of my head, I, I, I'm not thinking of a specific dish, but I've been out to dinner and been like, oh, that's interesting. And, and then be like, that is absolutely ridiculous and doesn't resemble the real dish in any way, shape or form of what it should be. So yeah, I mean, I am like that a little bit, but you know, if somebody does something and it's creative and great and and it tastes good, let them have their culinary license. Um, I feel that New York City on a whole, when you, cause I'll go out to eat and be like in, in New Jersey where I live or other places and eat something and go, man, this is good. But if I put that on my menu and I called it this dish, I'd get attacked in New York City. And I'm like, and I'd be attacked. People be like, that's not the right dish. That's not how you make it. And I feel like it's more lenient in other places. But, you know, when you eat something and it's great and they use culinary license, I think it's fantastic. By all means, go ahead and, and make it happen. Awesome. When you when you go out to eat, are you hard to please because you are a professionally trained chef and you've been cooking for years? Like, is it hard to, to enjoy something? No, you know, listen, I am more concerned about service. I do find like myself, like looking at stuff the way it looks. Is it now Instagrammable? Is it, you know, are the flavors all there? Is it seasoned? But you know what? I'm going out just to enjoy myself and enjoy whoever I'm with, my family or whatever, have a glass of wine, a cocktail with my dinner. So as long as my food's cooked correctly, like I order a steak, medium rare, the steak doesn't come out well done. I'm pretty like, and my wife says it to me all the time. She goes, she goes, you have, you never complain about anything in a restaurant. I don't. Um, the only thing that I, that I really get upset about is if you can't get service, like you're just like, like, yeah. hello, can I get a second drink on my table? Right. That's kind of the only thing that I kind of get like, Dude. where it kind of makes me crazy. <laughs> like, I get it. Sometimes you wait a long time for your food. Um, sometimes, you know, the kitchen's backed up. It happens. Sometimes you wait to sit down or, you know, they got to take their the order a little slowly. But, you know, if I'm already served and I'm eating and you've walked by the table three or four times, like my glass is empty. I'm like, hey, you know, like, can I please get another drink? Dude, I'm with you 100%. And the, the worst part about the drink thing, it's a win-win for everyone. The server yeah. gets more money because they get a higher bill, higher tip, and I get my freaking drink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I frequent, like I'm somebody who frequents places like all the, like the same place for the same thing all the time. And, you know, you start to see it. I have like a waitress in a specific restaurant that I go to. And I said to my wife, I go, the next time she can't be our waitress. I go, I'm going to have to, if she's our waitress, I'm going to have to ask for somebody else. Because the, it's just beyond that, that you can't ever get a second drink from her or she never comes back to the table or she walks by with her head down. Ugh, and I'm like, you know, I, I don't complain. I don't say anything. I just, you know, I just go about my meal and, you know, I, I still leave the tip and everything. And, you know, she's working for a tip and, 
yes, she should know that she needs to do a better job, but you know, it's, it's kind of like enough's enough. Like, you know, I want to have a second drink. You've waited on me enough times <laughs> right. to remember my face and that, that we drink multiple drinks when we go out to eat and, and end of story. Of course. Do you have like a top three New York City restaurants? If, if anybody were to go to Manhattan for the first time? Oh, for New York City, places that I frequent, Ruberosa, which is in Soho. It's uh, pizza and Italian. You know, next door to me in, in the city, they make some great pastas at Marini. Another place I like to go to is Lupa. And that's all really kind of in the same genre. That's Those are kind of the places I hit all the time. Yeah, those are great choices. And, and uh, those are the places I frequent in New York City, just because I know the people and I'm there. You know, with everything being closed, it's been it, it not really being open in New York City to sit down. I'm a bar person. I like to sit down at the bar and eat and drink. So there's so many other places that I probably have gone to over the years that I really that I really enjoy. But those are kind of still the places that I hit up that I'm around going to, just because they're within walking distance to me. And I like the product and I like the people that work there. It's so important to like the people, like if you had to do a power ranking of food presentation, food taste, vibes and ambiance and service, how, how would you power rank that? I, I think service has to be the most important, the most important factor of everything. And that goes to having like people that work with you, longevity of your employees, because regardless of customers speaking to servers or not, they still want to see the same server. They want the server to know them. They want recognition when they walk in that they're a regular customer. Feeling like a regular customer, I think is the most important part of the business. And that's, that's kind of everybody's goal that comes to eat in a restaurant is being the regular customer, being recognized. Of course, it um, feels so good. I think that food is definitely number two. Ambiance is important, but I think it kind of falls to the bottom because if you're hitting a home run on service and a home run on food, the presentation would be secondary to that. And the ambiance just falls in line because people may go like, ah, you know, like it's not such a like fancy restaurant. The seats aren't so comfortable, but I love coming here because I love the food and I love my server and I love the manager. And, you know, the chef always comes out and talks to us and everybody's so personal. So that's kind of, I think those two things, everything else falls in line below it. I agree 100%. Last question I'll ask you is, could you please do like an elevator pitch for your restaurant, kind of like a little mini commercial for your restaurant. I would love to hear it. Hey, everybody, listen, if you want to have the best lobster anywhere, anywhere in the United States, in fact, we'll say anywhere in the world, you're coming to Ed's Lobster Bar. You're coming to see me. You're thinking outside the box. You're not only having the lobster roll, you're having the lobster ravioli. You're having the lobster mac and cheese. You're sharing some raw bar, six, eight people at the table, a mix of everything on the table you're going to have the meal of your life. You will not be disappointed. Come to Ed's Lobster Bar. Come and see me, Ed McFarland. I'll be there. That was incredible. I got goosebumps. That was epic. <laughs> <laughs> really turned it on there, my man. <laughs> get, so, into different, get into a different mode. You get into a marketing mode. That crushed it. That was amazing. I asked you everything I wanted to ask you, Ed, but if there's anything I didn't touch on or anything you'd like to say, please feel free to do so. No, I think this was great. I really enjoyed being on the podcast. It was great talking with you. You had, you had great and creative questions. It was enjoyable. I mean, this was definitely, it was just more of a dialogue. So it's, it's nice to have a conversation as opposed to like, like, here's my list of everything. And, you know, <laughs> what year did you start cooking? And okay. And what was your position? So though no, this was nice. I really liked it. It's good flow. And the questions were well thought and creative. So fantastic. Thank you. Kudos to you. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Have a great rest of your day, Ed. Okay, take care. Thank you. Yep, bye. Dollar slice. Feast or pass.
pass. Pass. Okay. Yeah. I'm a pizza guy through and through and I will go wherever to eat good pizza. And I don't know that a good dollar slice exists unless somebody tells me otherwise I'll go try it. That's fair, man. I mean, I don't know how they can get it to be so cheap. Like I lived in New York for six years and it's kind of like pizza. It's pizza esque. (laughs) (laughs) Think about the ingredients to get it that cheap. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And I tell my Midwest followers, a dollar slice is kind of like like a Little Caesars or maybe even a little worse than a Little Caesars. Would you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, probably worse. <laughs> what about another suspect New York staple, a tamale from a random lady in the subway? You ever see oh, those like in Queens, beast. especially? Beast? beast. We eat those all the time at work. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we got specific people we buy them from, so... That's cool. Yeah. You can really see their passion shining through. And <laughs> I, I love it when they come to the bars, like some people sell roses or whatever at a bar, but yeah. the tamale person, oh man, forget about it. Yeah. It's funny because they're, they're all over the place and some of them are really great and some of them are not so good, but you find, you find out which ones are and which ones aren't quickly. <laughs> for sure. And then the last one for Feaster Pass, I'm guessing is going to be a pass, but McDonald's filet of fish feast or uh, pass. Pass. I haven't eaten McDonald's in Oh, probably 15 years. That's fair, dude. Do you eat any fast food or you just like- I eat no no fast food anymore. I grew up eating it. I eat no fast food at all. How about a fast casual, like a Chipotle? No, I stopped eating that as well. Um, I will go like, for me, fast food is pizza. That's what I, it's, that'd be the fast food that I do, but I don't do Chipotle. Um, I do do tacos. I'll do a taco truck, you know, but I don't do fast food per se as fast food. Now, would you say it's because- you have a very refined palate or you're trying to be healthy or maybe a little bit of everything? I think it's a little bit of everything. I think, listen, McDonald's tastes great. I mean, at the end of the day, you put a Big Mac in front of me, it's going to taste the same way it tasted 10 years ago and it's delicious or 15 right. years ago or 20 years ago. It's really a choice about, about health at the end of the day. And, you know, you know, make choices. I don't cut all processed carbohydrates out. I have kids and we eat cookies and, and, and all that nonsense, but it's just a choice to say, if we're going to eat a meal, we're going to eat a better meal. Fair enough. Yeah. And um, so, all right, Upper Feasters, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. You rule, you rock, you finished it, you did the darn thing. And uh, remember to subscribe, give a five-star review, tell your friends, and keep on crushing it. Thank you.